The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. And if you have a Bible, you can start turning there to John chapter 12. We're going to be in John chapter 12 this evening. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the contributions of men and, and so many others, like Martin Luther King Jr., who fought to uh, bring equality um, between this issue that is still so hotly contested. And we acknowledge here tonight that there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. And so we continue to pray, we continue to fight, and we continue to work, Lord, for the day when everyone will be considered equals and there won't be any more strife or fighting or racial tension in this world. And, and Lord, ultimately, we know that that's going to take the work of Jesus coming back to this earth. And so, Lord, we pray that the church, this church, would be a, a picture of what heaven's going to be like, a place where there is every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe. And, and you're a God who not only sees colors, but enjoys all of the colors and all of the cultures and all of the flavors of all of the people on this planet. And, and heaven's going to be a multicultural affair, and we're going to all surround your throne. And so we long for that day, but while we live in this world, we work towards that picture. And now, Lord, speak to us, your children, through your word. You've given me a word for tonight, and I pray that I would be able to effectively communicate to this gathering what you have so clearly and heavily burdened on my heart. And I pray and ask this as your servant in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. <coughs> amen. John chapter 12, the title of my message for you is Wholehearted Worship. And that is the topic of tonight's message. We're talking about wholehearted worship. And when we talk about worship, we're talking about ascribing ultimate worth or ultimate value to something. And of course, God is above all, He is over all, and He is worthy of our worship. Oftentimes, I think we're guilty of developing kind of a truncated view or understanding of what worship is, and we tend to associate it with praise music or perhaps the time dedicated to singing in our services. And while that's certainly one type or form of worship, by no means is that the only kind of worship there is. And today, we're going to consider three specific forms of worship. And as we get started, I just want to lay down this foundational thought that, that worship matters because God is looking for worshipers. Now, there are a lot of things that please the heart of the Father, but in John chapter 4, Jesus specifically tells us that the Father is looking for worshipers. Now, notice, it doesn't say that he needs our worship. It says that he wants worshipers. Now, why is that? Why is God looking for worshipers? I'll tell you why. Because he knows that we become like whatever we worship. So the thought is this. Whatever you continually behold, you eventually become. And so as we behold the Father, we become like him. And that's why it's imperative that we learn how to worship. <clears throat> 
Secondly, the other reason why this matter or topic of worship matters so much is because you were created for worship. It's essentially the primary reason for your existence. Now, if you don't worship God, you'll invariably and inevitably end up worshiping something else, and you'll worship the creation rather than the creator. But we need to understand that we were designed and created by God, not only with a unique capacity to worship, but we were designed for that very purpose. So get out of your mind this notion that worship is kind of the pre game or the, the, the warm-up or the entertainment before the actual service begins. It's the crescendo. It is the grand finale. And if you don't like worship, I'll just say this, you probably aren't going to like heaven very much. I don't know if you've read through the book of Revelation lately or not, but there's a whole lot of worship in heaven. And so if you want to know why you exist, if you want to know what your future is, and if you want to know what this whole thing is all about, then you need to learn about worship. And with that as an introduction, let's go ahead and jump into our text beginning in verse 1 of John 12. It says, six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And then listen to Jesus. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. All right, so... The backdrop for this story that we find ourselves in once again happens to be the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It's been a little while, but if you'll remember there in John chapter 11, when we were last in the gospel of John, before we took a break for the holidays and the new year and all of that, we considered what was perhaps Jesus' most impressive miracle as he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus who had been dead for four days. And now some time has passed and Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And on his way there, he stops by the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now John tells us in verse one that this happened six days before the Passover. That puts us a week out from the crucifixion. Think about it. Jesus is now getting ready to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then a few days later, he's going to hang on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And the reason I bring this up is because here we are in John chapter 12. We've still got about half the book to go. 
And yet already we find ourselves in the last week of Jesus' life. It's interesting when you consider the amount of time that each gospel author dedicates to this specific portion, the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. So in both Matthew and Mark, they dedicate about a third of their gospels to the last week of Jesus' life. Luke, for his part, he dedicates about a quarter of his gospel to this portion of Jesus' life. But John, he takes the cake. He dedicates almost half of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. And beyond that, when you get to chapter 13, now you're talking about the final day and even the final night of Jesus' life. So a third of John's gospel deals with the very last day of Jesus' life. And and the point I'm making here is, when you consider the combined effort of these men to to chronologue and detail the events described in the last days of Jesus' life, what it does is it, it drives home that at the very center and heart of Jesus' whole ministry, his whole life, everything he said, everything he did was moving to this climactic moment on Calvary. So that's where we're headed. And while the shadow of the cross may have lingered over the entirety of Jesus' life, at this particular moment, the note is one of joy. You see, they're hosting a dinner party in Jesus' honor. And Mary and Martha are there, and they want to show their appreciation to Jesus for what he's done. I mean, how do you say thank you to someone who has raised your brother from the dead? They decided to invite Jesus over for a dinner. And and I want you to go back in your mind's eye and take the camera of your imagination and just pause on each of the characters in this scene and allow it to linger there for a moment or two. You have Jesus, who is the, the centerpiece of everything that's happening. And then you find Martha serving, and you see Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, and Lazarus is there reclining and enjoying sweet fellowship with Jesus. They're all there at the table, enjoying a beautiful meal. And and in this moment, what we're given is a a beautiful glimpse or a taste, a, a preview, if you will, of coming attractions. For you see, the book of Revelation describes a future date, an event called the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all of the believers will be in the presence of the Lord and will be at the table and will be enjoying fellowship with all of our loved ones who have gone on before us and they're already in Jesus' presence and will be reunited. And it says there, there will be no more sorrow and no more suffering and no more pain and the angels will be serving us and, and there will join in the feast of the ages at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I can't help but see in this event a glimpse or a foreshadowing of that glorious day. But there's something else that I want to draw your attention to, and it will occupy our time, the remainder of our time here this evening, and it's this. There are three powerful pictures of worship here that we see in each one of the individuals that I just mentioned. And I want to draw those out. The first one we see is through Mary. I'm sorry, Martha. And in Martha, we see a picture of her work being a form of worship, worshiping through our work. Let's talk about that. Martha is there in the kitchen, and she's preparing a lasagna or her favorite dish or whatever. And this is a customary role for her. We're used to seeing her in the kitchen. In fact, 
Mark's gospel, or rather Luke's gospel, records for us another occasion on which Jesus was there in the home of Mary and Martha. And once again, Martha is running around frantically trying to put dinner on the table. However, in that instance, she was not happy about it. You see, her sister Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet again. And Martha, you can imagine just how frustrating that would be. And she's doing all the prep and all of the cleaning and all of the, 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 the dinner preparation and setting the table. And Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. And she walks by. And, <sighs> you know how you try to let someone know how displeased you are with them. And finally, she's had enough. And she gets Jesus involved. And she says, Jesus, aren't you going to tell Mary to help me? And Jesus says, oh, Martha. <laughs> You're worried about a lot of things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the better part, and it, it's not going to be taken from her. And we often interpret that to mean like, you shouldn't work, but just sit at Jesus' feet. And I think that's the wrong interpretation of what Jesus was trying to communicate there. He wasn't telling Martha that what you're doing doesn't matter. Instead, he wanted to teach her that the work she was doing needed to flow out of a heart posture of worship. You see, oftentimes, just like Martha, we can find ourselves getting caught up in wanting to do things for the Lord. However, if what you're doing for the Lord doesn't flow out of intimacy with the Lord, you are setting yourself up for burnout and frustration. And Martha is a picture of that. You see, Everything we do for the Lord needs to stem from the time that we spend with him, just pouring our hearts out in praise, hearing from him, and just spending time in his presence. And then you'll find that you have the energy to serve the Lord. Well, Martha learned that lesson, lesson well on that day. And I say that because here we find her serving once again. But notice what's missing. No complaining, no grumbling. Instead of serving begrudgingly, she's now doing it joyfully and willingly and gladly. Her heart is full, and the work she's doing is no longer a drudgery. So we ask, what changed? And the answer is, she wasn't just working now. She's worshiping. She's worshiping as she's working. She's worshiping through her work. You see, Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. And so now her service for the Lord bubbled over and spilled out of a heart filled with gratitude. Listen, I'm talking not just about Martha here, but I'm talking about you and how God can transform your heart posture as it pertains to the jobs in which you serve. You see, listen to this verse. In fact, let's go ahead and read it together. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Let's read it out loud. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, your work becomes an extension of your worship when you do it for the Lord. There's this classic little book that I have as part of my library, it's, it's a little volume, and it's called Practicing the Presence of God. It's a Christian classic. Perhaps you have it. If not, you should probably pick up a copy. It was, it was written in the 17th century by a, 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 a monk named Brother Lawrence. 
And he desperately wanted to serve and teach in the monastery, but he was uneducated and and thus wasn't able to do the study necessary to become a minister. And so instead he took the only job that they would give him and that was in the kitchen. And there he spent his days cooking and cleaning and doing meal prep for all the other monks. But rather than complain about his role, he set out to seek the presence of God right there in that kitchen. And he ultimately succeeded. He said, I never fully arrived at this place where I never lost consciousness of God, but I got to the place where I could worship God as purely and as powerfully there in the kitchen as I could in the chapel. And he said in that little book, and I quote, the time of work does not with me differ from the time of worship. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, even while several people are at the same time calling out for different things, I commune with God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees in prayer in the holiest cathedral of worship. I love that. He turned that kitchen into a cathedral. He turned that place of misery into a place of praise. And just like Brother Lawrence, And just like Martha, you too can turn your work into worship. You see, her love for Jesus prompted her to use the thing that she was passionate about to serve the Lord. In her case, it was the kitchen. And by the way, if you have a a ministry of food, God bless you. You just serve people. You feed people. My grandmother was like this. I never went to her house once, but that she wasn't just filling my plate. And it was like, I'm full. Here's seconds. You know. And it was like, do you want ice cream with that? With what? With the pie. It's already on your plate. Let's go. And if you have that ministry, God bless you. But our work, it should become an extension of our worship. And the thing that turns it from a drudgery into a delight is understanding what Jesus has done for you. Martha arrived at that place, and she gives to us a powerful picture of worship. The second person I want you to to scan and draw your attention to is Lazarus. And from him, we learn how to worship through our witness. We read in verse 2 that Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. You know, he was a powerful witness. But you know what? He doesn't really do much, does he? He doesn't say much either. In fact, did you know that we have zero recorded words of Lazarus? He never says a single word. And I was thinking about that, and I thought maybe it's because he had two sisters, and they just kind of ate up all of the airspace. I'm just kidding, ladies. Kidding. I kid. We're friends. I love you. The truth is, Lazarus didn't need to open his mouth to have an impact. You see, his mere presence spoke volumes, didn't it? After all, when you've been dead for four days and now you're alive, you don't have to say anything. You are all the proof that anyone needs that God is alive and moving. Amen? In the previous chapter, John tells us that many of the Jews came to visit Mary, and they, when they had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. What they saw was Lazarus. In our story, in verse 9, John adds this fact. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. In fact, Lazarus was being such an impactful and effective witness for Jesus that the Pharisees 
who were so frustrated, they determined in verse 10, well, now we got to kill this guy again. we got to kill him because too many people are coming to faith in Jesus through him. Think about how backwards and twisted that logic is. <laughs> yes, make no mistake about it, Lazarus was a powerful witness for Jesus, even though he didn't say anything. And the story reminds me of that old quote from St. Francis of Assisi. Maybe you've heard it. He says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. <laughs> and the, the, the idea embedded in that statement is there should be something about you and the way you carry yourself and the presence that you walk in that others will be able to determine you're a Christian without you having to even open up your mouth. Have you ever met somebody and it was just like by the way that they lived and the way that they carried themselves and the way that they conducted their business, you're like, you know, are you a Christian? I, I just have to ask. And they go, by a matter of, as a matter of fact, yes, I am. How did you know? And you're just like, I just knew. I had a hunch. That was Lazarus. And the truth is, all of us who know and love the Lord share Lazarus' story. We have Lazarus' witness. Our, the details of our story might differ from person to person, but at the core, they're the same. You see, just like him, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, bound in iniquity, wrapped up in grave clothes. But then Jesus came along and he called us by name and we were lifted out of our grave. And then we've been loosed from our grave clothes. And as if all of that weren't enough, the Bible describes how we've been invited to the table to sit and dine with him and fellowship with him. And at this very moment, we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Lazarus' story is your story. You're no longer the same person you used to be. So let your witness shine. It is a form of worship. So we've talked about, at this point, Martha and how her love for Jesus found expression through her service and her work became worship. And we've talked about Lazarus and how his life changed, preached a bold and defiant message and, and how his witness became his worship. And now we land on Mary. And through Mary, we get a picture of worshiping with our whole heart. Mary's love for Jesus found expression in wholehearted worship. And there's two things that I want to draw your attention to as it pertains to Mary's worship. First, her worship was extravagant. There's nothing half-hearted or tepid or reserved about what Mary does in this story. She goes all in in her love for Jesus. In fact, in Mark's account or his telling of these same events, he describes how she took this vial full of nard, which was expensive perfume, and how she broke the neck of it and poured out all the contents, starting at his head. She didn't hold anything back. She didn't come with her scraps. She didn't come with her leftovers. She brought the best that she had, and she poured it all out on him. Notice, too, she didn't just squeeze out a drop or two. She didn't come with a teaspoon. No, she emptied the entire vial of perfume onto Jesus. And you can picture the perfume 
just running down his hair and off of his beard and dripping from his clothing and pooling at his feet. And Mary's taking all of this in and she sees that. And in a moment, she's just undone and she takes her hair and she undoes her hair. By the way, this is something that was culturally unacceptable. The Bible describes how a woman's hair is her glory. And so the only man that was to see a woman's hair was her husband. But Mary's not worried about breaking social taboos or cultural norms. She undoes her hair and in her overwhelming sense of devotion and worship and gratitude, thanking Jesus for all he had done for her. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair. John tells us that what she did resulted in the whole house being filled with the fragrance of her perfume. And I love that picture. I want to draw something out from that. You see, remember, John, he's describing these stories or writing them down for us years after the events themselves had transpired. And yet, as John sat there with quill and ink, and he's writing this down on parchment, he thinks back to that night, and he goes, oh, yeah, I remember how the whole house was filled with the fragrant, pungent aroma of Mary's perfume. And it's a picture for us of our worship. You see, going all the way back to the Old Testament, fragrance and perfume played an intricate role in worship. The Lord gave Moses precise instructions on making perfume that was supposed to be used in the tabernacle and in the worship services. It was never supposed to be duplicated. It was never supposed to be used for personal use. And it had a very specific ingredients, that list of ingredients that had to, to, to be part of it. And I want to read to you out of Exodus chapter 30, verse 35. The Lord said to Moses, and make a fragrant blend of incense the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred or holy. Oh, I love that picture. The, the worship, the, the, the fragrance of our worship is to be salted, pure, and sacred. And when you bring a heart that is salted, it's flavorful, that it entices and whets the thirst and the appetite of the world. It's, it's pure, it's undefiled by the things of this world, and you pour that out on Jesus' feet. It fills all of heaven and all of earth with a fragrance and a sweet aroma. You know, the New Testament talks about this as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It says, but thank God he made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. That's 2 Corinthians 2, 14, 15. But don't you love that picture? How he says, when we spread the knowledge of God, when our lives emit that saltiness, when there's purity, when there's a, a holiness about our lives, we become a Christ-like fragrance that rises up to God. And by the way, it's not just something we pour out on him. It's something that we carry with us. Think about it. When Mary, or rather when Jesus left the house that night, he was covered head to toe with this perfume. But you know who else was? 
Mary, right? It was all up in her hair. And it reminds us of the fact that whatever and whenever we pour out our praise, we end up carrying the fragrance of Christ as we go. Somebody say hallelujah. So her worship was extravagant. And the second thing I want you to take note of is that it was also sacrificial. And I think the sacrificial nature of her act can be seen in the great cost of what she gave. That little delicate glass vial of nard, just several ounces large, it was, it was extremely expensive. It was no doubt her most precious and prized possession. There have been many who have speculated that perhaps this was her dowry or a gift from her parents on her wedding night. It would have had to have been imported all the way from India, which would have made it very expensive. In fact, according to Judas, he says, this could have been sold for 300 denarius. Now, at that time, a denarius was a day's wage. So in other words, Judas was equating the value of that little vial of perfume with a year's wages. Think of what you make and what you spend in a year on everything from your mortgage to rent to food to entertainment and all the rest. And, and all of that contained in a single vial, and she pours it all out on Jesus. Wow. Mary's act of worship was definitely over the top. It was definitely costly, and it was definitely sacrificial. It reminds me in that way of the worship of, of David, who on another occasion, King David, we read about how there was this plague that was sweeping throughout Israel, and, and he saw this angel there at the threshing floor of Aruna, and he goes to worship God there at the threshing floor of this guy's house named Aruna. He says, I want to I worship the Lord here, and I want to sacrifice to the Lord. I want to buy this property from you. And Aruna's humbled that the king would want to worship on his property. I mean, it's the king. It's David. He says, you don't have to buy it. I'll give it to you. I'll provide the animals. All that I have is yours. Take it. And David responded in 2 Samuel 24, 24, no, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Listen, church, I believe there's a sense in which our worship ought to cost us something. A worship that costs little is valued little. Many are only willing to worship if it's convenient. There's a difference between costly worship and convenient worship. Some of us, we're willing to engage in worship if, if we like the song or if we're in the mood or if, or if we're feeling inspired by the band on that particular night. And I understand all of that. I really do. I understand wanting to be inspired, wanting to be moved. But, but let's... Let's be clear about something. When we worship God, it's not about us. You see, it's about him. It's for him. He is the centerpiece to our worship. It's about his worth, and he has ultimate worth. He is worth everything, and all that we could ever bring him is still not enough. And so we need to engage in a worship that is costly. You see, this is something that Old Testament believers were well acquainted with, this whole idea of sacrificial worship. And I'll tell you why. Every time they wanted to worship God, they would go to the temple, but they would bring something with them. They would bring a sacrifice whether it be a lamb or a, a, a dove or a goat or a bull, they would bring that sacrifice to the temple and there they would worship. So there was a cost 
fixed in their mind that was associated with worship. You say, well, how does that speak to us? We don't, we don't bring bulls and cows and goats, lambs to, to worship the Lord here. Praise the Lord that that's true, amen? Under the new covenant, we recognize that Jesus is our sacrifice. He is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God who paid for our sins at the cross and we're accepted by God because of what he did for us. And so we have access to the throne of grace because of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that our worship no longer necessitates sacrifice. You see, just like in the Old Testament, how it was lambs and bulls and goats, there are things that the New Testament describes how we worship with. It says that we lay down our lives, and that is a form of worship. And in Hebrews, we're told this. This is in your notes. Let's read it together out loud. It says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We offer the sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of our lips. Let's talk about corporate worship and praise, praising God with our lips for a moment here. You know, there are those times and those seasons when it just seems to flow effortlessly, and it just kind of spills out of you. You're like a soda that's been filled to the top, and then the fizz just kind of bubbles over. And sometimes that's what our worship feels like. But then there are those other seasons when our hearts are heavy or burdened or sad, and we don't feel like worshiping. And that's when we get to bring a special kind of worship. It is a sacrificial praise. It's the kind of worship that Job offered to God. In the aftermath of everything that he suffered and everything that he lost, he said, naked I came into this world and naked I'm leaving. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, there's a special sweetness and a fragrance to this type of praise. It, it's the kind of praise that you never get a second opportunity to offer. Let's think about it like this. You know how the Bible describes our praise as gates? And there are several scriptures in the Old Testament that refer to our praise being like gates of access. So we enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts, and we enter his courts with praise. Another place that talks about this is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 18, which says that, the, that your walls, your walls shall be called salvation, and your gates shall be called praise. So there's God's part and there's our part. God does the saving. We can't do that. But we bring the praise, and the praise becomes the gate. It becomes, it becomes the point of access by which we gain entrance into the very presence of the Lord. Think about that. God is enthroned in the praises of his people. Isn't that glorious? When you praise, when you worship, it draws the presence of God down, and he just finds a home there. Now, if that's true, I wonder if the converse of that is equally true. If God is enthroned in our praise, then who are we enthroning through our criticisms and our complaints? It's a scary thought. So we have this picture, though, that praise is the gate. Now, here's what's interesting. 
When you come all the way to the book of Revelation, John describes the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, and he says, in, and I believe it's in Revelation chapter 21, how the gates of the new city are made of individual pearls. So picture a pearl that's as big as a gate. That's a big pearl. And pearls are, of course, beautiful, but what else do we know about pure pearls? Well, they're, they're formed from an irritant, a grain of sand, something in the mouth of the oyster that it wants to expunge and expel. It would rather be without this thing, and so it begins to wrap it in a salve. And over time, it hardens and calcifies, and it becomes a beautiful pearl. What am I getting at? The gates are praise, but that praise often comes in the form of a pearl. You see, gates of praise are often developed during Seasons of difficulty, trying times. And I can speak personally from this perspective, having passed through a difficult season. And I shared recently at our worship night how, you know, we, would, we had these, these powerful times of worship after my father went to be with the Lord. And I, I can remember standing on this stage and my heart was full of grief and sorrow and heartache. And there, there were questions and there were things that I was still wrestling through. And there were, there were things that I was unsure about. And, and there was all this flood of emotions in my heart. And yet, at that same moment, we're singing songs like, I'm going to sing in the middle of my storm louder and louder. You're going to hear my presence roar up from the ashes. Hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. And, and I'm hearing that. And, and in my heart, in that split second, I had a decision to make. Am I going to give in to all that other stuff that's swirling around in me, the pain, all of the other parts, things that were real, feelings and emotions that I was wrestling with? Or in that moment, would I decide to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, knowing that I would never get to offer in that same way, through that same pain, that same type of praise. You see, when we get to heaven, we'll still worship him, won't we? But I won't be able to worship through pain because heaven's a place with no pain. In heaven, there's no sorrow. In heaven, there's no grief. In heaven, there's no suffering. And so in the midst of your difficulty, you can form a gate of praise, a pathway to the presence as you worship God in the middle of your storm. And I love Mary for teaching us how to do that. Last thought, and then we'll be done. Worship offered to Jesus is never wasted. As Mary pours out her praise at the feet of Jesus extravagantly, sacrificially, notice what Judas says about this. He says, what a waste. And notice, whenever you go all in in your love for Jesus, there will be those who criticize you, those who stand on the outside. And it's kind of like you can't, you can't discern or tell what's happening in a person's heart from the outside. If you're not part of it, it just looks messy and weird. But who are we to judge what that person's experiencing in the presence of God, right? And so he says, what a, a waste. And of course, the ironic thing about that statement is there's no bigger waste in the universe than Judas Iscariot. Think of what he wasted, the opportunity that he was given. He had the chance, he won the golden ticket. 
He was given the opportunity to walk with Jesus for three and a half years. He saw miracles. He saw the the lame raised. He saw blind eyes opened. He saw deaf ears unstopped. He saw leprosy healed. He saw mountains moved. He saw seas calmed. He saw all of it. And yet in the end, he traded Jesus, sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was one of those guys who knew the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And there are some things that we determine are valuable in this world that God would say that's a waste. And there are other things that we see as a waste on this side of eternity that Jesus says that has incredible wealth, that has incredible Value, And this is one of those things. And I close with this thought. I, I look at Jesus and he says, hey, be quiet, Judas. What she's done, she's done for me. She's in some way able to discern that what she's doing is for my burial. She's preparing me on this side of eternity for what I'm about to pass through. In fact, I think, I, I think what she's doing is so beautiful, Judas, that whenever the story of my life gets told... They're going to include what she has just done for me. Think about that. Jesus didn't say that about any other person, any other individual. He didn't say, wherever the gospel is told, you'll hear about the deeds of Peter or James or John, John the Baptist, any of them. No, no, he said, wherever the story of the gospel gets told, I'm going to make sure that they hear about Mary. And here we are 2,000 years later verifying the, the prophecy that Jesus spoke over her life. And it drives home this thought that what the others, what the outsiders, what the world sees as wasteful, Jesus sees as beautiful. So as we close this evening, I hope you hear my passion. This is a heart message for me. I'm a worshiper in my soul, and I feel like our church carries with it a mantle of worship. We're going to be a house that produces worship leaders. We're going to be a house that produces worship songs. We've sung two of our own worship songs tonight. The team is working on dozens of others, and those are going to be forthcoming. But this is, this is a calling. This is an anointing. This is a a mantle that has been given to our house, that we will be a people who worships the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, because it brings God glory. It fulfills our purpose. And in doing that, we are satisfied. Amen? Let's thank the Lord in prayer, and then we'll worship him before we go. Praise your name, Jesus. You are over and above all. You are king. You are high and lifted up. And Lord, where we have approached you in an attitude of casualness, when we have approached you only when it's convenient for us, when we have lost sight of the fact that our worship is to you, it's, a for, it's for you, It's about you, Lord, and not us. Lord, I I pray that you'd forgive us for that and move us into this place where we begin to see all of our work as worship, the witness of our very lives as a form of worship, and that we would pour out our hearts in wholehearted, 
passionate, extravagant, sacrificial love for you because of who you are, because of what you've done, because you're worthy of it all. We love you, King Jesus. Be glorified in these moments now as we lift up your name in song in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.